I am Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Peter Morley is one of my favorite people on the planet. Despite a series of devastating health challenges, Peter travels from his home in New York to Washington, D.C., month after month, bringing personal health stories about the importance of the Affordable Care Act to members of Congress. He's become one of the leading healthcare advocates in America, and his personal story, his sacrifice, and his heart are an inspiration to me and to so many people around the nation. I know you'll love him as much as I do. The yeas are 220, the nays are 215. The bill is passed. Today, after almost a century of triumph, today, after over a year of debate, today, after all the votes have been tallied, health insurance reform becomes law in the United States of America. Today. On the campaign trail in 2016, Donald Trump repeatedly pledged to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Somebody said the other day, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, we're going to work immediately on repealing Obamacare. I've been talking about we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare from day one. Now, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We will be able to immediately repeal and replace Obamacare. Have to do it. One of my first acts as president will be to repeal and replace disastrous Obamacare. Once elected, Trump told reporters he never said he would repeal and replace Obamacare during his first days in office. And I never said, I guess I'm here, what, 64 days? I never said repeal and replace Obamacare. You've all heard my speeches. I never said repeal it and replace it within 64 days. I have a long time. Healthcare is a human right. And we're fighting against his health care bill because it would be really destructive to millions of people in this country who rely upon Medicaid for their health care, who rely upon Planned Parenthood for their reproductive health care. Um, and it's just a really disastrous thing to do to people who rely on, on those services. So we're standing up and showing the Senate that we really think that they should not pass this bill. Trump has repeatedly promised an imminent Republican health care bill. Republicans have been deadlocked on an overhaul effort of the Affordable Care Act since February 2017 when the House introduced the American Health Care Act. The legislation collapsed in the Republican-controlled Senate when the late Senator John McCain gave a thumbs-down vote to the proposal. My name is Peter Morley, and I'm a patient and patient advocate. Sorry, not sorry. You have such a unique story because you come to activism in a really organic way, and it's something that happened later in your life. So why don't you just start telling us a bit about your story? Tell tell us a bit about who you are and and your background. Sure. Well, I was a, a relatively healthy person until about 11 years ago. 12 years ago now, oh my gosh, time goes by so quickly. I had an accident. I uh, had fallen off of a ladder. I injured my back and I had several spinal surgeries. Uh, I was un- unable to work anymore. I, I had a successful career in uh, broadcasting actually as, a, as in research. And it, it was a huge adjustment for me. And uh, I had made a couple attempts to go back to work, and I just couldn't manage my pain. So I 
was going to have a reconstructive surgery on my back because this the surgeries just were still I, I was still living with a lot of chronic pain and during one of the uh, pretests for the surgeries I had an incidental finding of uh, kidney cancer and it was really shocking so I went from having my back be reconstructed to having part of my right kidney removed and it was you know I didn't have time to think about it it wow. just it just happened and the thing is with with kidney cancer which I didn't know anything about kidney cancer before I had it as you know as most things you don't know them until unfortunately you you have them especially with health issues and I didn't realize how deadly it is and it is one of the 10 deadliest cancers and unfortunately, you don't find out that you have kidney cancer until you're in a later stage when it's metastasized. So if I didn't find out, so actually falling off that ladder and injuring my back actually saved my life, which is wow. bizarre in itself. Yeah. Wow. How do you sort of think that that happened? Do you believe in divine intervention? Is there, what is your faith like? Why you? Why, why did they, whoever allow you to find out that information in a timely manner? It, it took me a long time to rectify that because, you know, I, I'm a very productive person and I was very angry for a long time because, you know, I wanted to work and I wanted to be like a contributing member of society. But it wasn't until my cancer diagnosis that I realized that I was very fortunate because it, and it still really didn't dawn on me until later at that time I was so focused on being a cancer survivor and focusing on you know taking the best care I could of myself and I really didn't think about it you know I really tried to focus on every moment and to be aware of my body. And, you know, I, I didn't really think about it. I mean, that's something that happened later in my life because, you know, my story continues with my health issues because after I was diagnosed with, with cancer, after I got through that, uh, I was diagnosed with lupus. So it was kind of like one thing after another. And, you know, the lupus diagnosis to me made the most sense because the symptoms, the chronic fatigue, the joint pain, it all goes back to me growing up. And I mean, there were, you know, I would get more, more tired than my friends. I was physically limited, but I just, I never understood it. I mean, actually I was called lazy sometimes, you know, by like my gym or PE teachers. So it's just, it's just amazing. Like the stigma of not understanding and every, everything, you know, when you go through chronic health issues, a lot of things seem like they're in, in retrospect. So I spent a lot of time reflecting and also coping, you know, I had to find new ways to cope and I had to eat differently, I had to live differently, and I had to accept the fact that I had to live my life now with, with limitations. But I also came to believe that I didn't have to also live my life to the fullest that I could. And how, how do you feel that this has impacted your life? I mean, not only obviously it's got to take an emotional toll, but tell me what this did to you pragmatically as far as financially. Was there any chance of you getting a job after all this diagnosis? How, how were you impacted? I wasn't able to work. I mean, I, I have a partner who, you know, picked up the slack on the, on the rent. So I was very fortunate with that. But as far as myself, you know, I ended up having to live on a fixed income and uh, disability, and again, huge adjustment. I mean, yes, it was something that I paid into all my life, but it wasn't something that I wanted to to do. But I also realized that 
I wanted to live. And the only way to do that was to live by what my body was telling me. And, and I had to listen to what it was saying. And that was, that was a huge adjustment. Living within limitations, I think, is very difficult for people, especially people that have lived such a, an active life, you know, that have been able to work or, you know, you, you were, you got injured on a ladder. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. very incredibly active. So yeah. I think anytime you have limitations, and that can also lead to societal limitations um, when people are fighting stigma. Yeah. Limitations, you know, look differently for everybody. And it always seems like we're being sort of put in a box as far as what you're capable of, right? Okay, this is what you're capable of. Stay right, right in this little box and this is all you can do. This is all we want you to do. And Absolutely. Yes. I think it's truly the the brave and the courageous that are able to work through figuring out how to live with limitations but also do extraordinary things. How old were you at the point that you were diagnosed with cancer and lupus? When I was diagnosed with, with cancer, I was almost 42 years old. And then I was diagnosed with lupus at uh, 43. So, 44, I mean, almost. for everyone listening right now, this is why healthcare is so important and so vital. You can live a totally normal, healthy, productive life. And then in the blink of an eye, something yeah. can happen that shifts that. And yeah. then what? Then what happens? And what happened, what happened for you, Peter? For a while there, my partner works for the city and he's my primary caregiver and he wasn't able to go to a lot of appointments with me. And you know, for a while, I needed long-term care. And that was another adjustment. Having somebody come into my apartment, you know, five days a week and, you know, go to doctor appointments with me and somebody who is very, who I consider myself very independent to having somebody come in and take care of me was really an adjustment. But I also recognized that, you know, I became very good at navigating healthcare systems such as uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And when the ACA came along, I also was very good at navigating the marketplace. So my way of giving back at that time was to help people who were, you know, signing up for Medicare and, uh, helping them with their Medicare supplemental plans because Medicare only pays for 80% of your care and you need a supplemental plan. Uh, Medicaid is extremely complex as you know, is the marketplace and helping them pick plans for themselves. And that, and that's how I gave back and And I felt like I was contributing people. I, I became known as the go-to person and this is all, you know, pre Twitter pre-2016 election, you know, when healthcare felt more insulated and more progressive than it became. What shifted where you were this guy that was sort of angry, that was trying to adjust to this way of life, someone that, that couldn't really cope to this person that we see today who is so strong, who fights for people's rights. Was there a moment where, where this shifted or was it a gradual development? It, it was gradual. I think, I think after my lupus diagnosis and I started going to um, support groups, I think it, it started when I heard other people's stories and stories of people who had survived so much more than myself, people who had survived, you know, like two or three strokes from lupus and and just other things, other stories. I mean, my own story, I mean, it gets it gets very complicated. I mean, I've had 
10 surgeries in 12 years. And some of those surgeries, you know, lupus unfortunately does such unbelievable havoc to your body that, you know, I had two separate pituitary tumors in which, you know, resulted in me having brain surgery. And I had what they call endonasal surgery. So they did like they accessed my pituitary gland through my nose. And I think with each surgery, I became more appreciative to the fact that I survived, you know, those surgeries and I'm still here and I'm still alive. And that I'm so grateful and I'm so appreciative because there were so many people that I knew about that weren't as fortunate. And, you know, I've had friends that have died of cancer and didn't survive. And they would want to see me thrive and they would want to see me persevere. So I think that was probably the turning point with each surgery. Just it, instead of, instead of getting angry about it, I was, I, I became more appreciative. I became more grateful. Well, and I also think there's something to the idea that when you have to contemplate death in a real substantial right. way, it makes you try to really explore what life means. And yes. I, I would imagine that your desire to help people live in the most pain-free, emotional and physical pain-free way possible when faced with such adversity would probably become something that, especially someone like you, a, pr a priority. And I mean, I look at you and I think about the progression in which you got here today in this space right yeah. now. And I think there's there's no such thing as an accident when it has to do with, with this. Yeah. You are saving people's lives. You are helping people thrive. Um, people that were put in a box and and forgotten about and people that are being sort of thrown away now with this with this administration you're giving yeah. people hope and so i have to think that this was this was part of your path from the very very beginning okay so 2016 comes along right the election happens right trump gets elected yes <laughs> it's so painful to hear <laughs> i know i know we'll never get over it but no. but what shifted i know you were a very very private person before all of this happened. Absolutely. Then tr Trump gets elected, and and what changed for you? Well, for me personally, my my focus during the presidential election was listening to a man just with zero compassion for healthcare, and you know, talking about repealing and you know repealing the affordable care act and just from his interviews just him not knowing what he was talking about and you know it jolted me and in my heart i had hoped that that would never come to fruition because for me the next steps of the affordable care act was to enhance it and to you know make healthcare even more affordable but once he got elected my biggest fear was that he was going to repeal the ACA. And he had, you know, the votes to do it because Congress belonged to the Republicans and they were like, you know, chomping at the bit to do that. So I was like, oh my God, it's going to happen. And on that, on that night, you know, something really snapped in inside me because I just saw healthcare being torn apart, the ACA being repealed. I saw Medicaid being cut. I saw Medicare being cut. And it, it, it frightened me. And not just for myself, but for so many people. So many people who depend on those healthcare systems. You remember what was at stake. This was about rolling healthcare back for millions and millions and millions of people. And we were a 4852 
uh, Senate at that moment. The bill had already passed the House. And we all knew if it got even to 50-50, people were going to lose health care around this country because the vice president would break the tie and, and roll back this health care. And so Susan Collins had already committed. Lisa Murkowski had already committed. Lisa Murkowski, who was the third Republican, and I had gone over to talk with John. He had just gotten back. He had found out that he had this devastating diagnosis. And he had been listening to the arguments that we had been making that past week. I spent a lot of time talking to John McCain in the days leading up to that. We were very close. And we're all on the floor that night for the vote, including the vice president who's wandering around and trying to make sure that all the folks are staying in line on the Republican side. And we were talking about it and what he was going to do. And all of a sudden, he pointed to both of us and he said, you two are right. And it was then that I knew he was going to vote no. 1.29 a.m., Senator McCain re-enters the chamber. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stands at the front of the room like he had most of the night. The grin on his face, though, quickly disappears. Mr. Peters. Senator Bernie Sanders appears to nudge Senator Gene Shaheen as if to say, watch this. McCain waves his hand to get the attention of the Senate clerk, pauses for just a moment and gives a dramatic thumbs down. Republicans have been deadlocked on an overhaul effort of the Affordable Care Act since February 2017, when the House introduced the American Health Care Act. The legislation collapsed in the Republican-controlled Senate when the late Senator John McCain gave a thumbs-down vote to the proposal. I felt such a loss of power. And I would go to the Internet, you know, and just search, I don't know, for something inspirational. I was not on Twitter, but you can see tweets from people, like in, you know, articles and there were just people I just remember that resonated with me. And I started to look at their Twitter timelines more. And I thought to myself, and I discussed this with my partner, because as you mentioned, I am a very, or I should say was a very private person. There were people in my life who didn't even know that I had kidney cancer, who didn't know that I had lupus, and a lot of them actually found out when I did eventually go to Twitter. But there, there isn't a lot of awareness for uh, people who are men with lupus. Lupus, the population of lupus, is mostly 90% women, 10% men. A lot of people to this day, I still get tweets at me that say, I didn't even know that men could have lupus. And, you know, they're being truthful and, you know, it's, it, there's just so much, there's just not enough awareness. So I figured if I go to Twitter and I do something to empower myself, then I feel like I have some sense of control, you know, some sense of empowerment. So that was my goal that if I could impact one person's life, and I told this to my partner, Jerry, and I said, if I could do that, then I'll just delete my account. But you know, the truth is it happened in a week. Somebody said, you really changed my life. And you know what? It felt so good. I didn't want to stop. And I just kept going. And it it was just, it, it was like, I was reaching people who felt alone. And I know that feeling of feeling isolated, alone, scared, limited, and I wanted to reach them and I wanted to give them hope because we needed hope, especially that time, especially when the repeal for the ACA was starting to go through Congress and, and go through the House and the first time it failed. But it was coming back. It wasn't stopping. And there it was like, I just, I just, my level of involvement kept getting deeper and deeper until I started working with my uh, representatives. As a mom, actor, designer, author, activist, and business owner, 
(laughs) I know what it's like to be busy and just how distracting uncomfortable clothes can be. And that's why I love Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. These pants look great anywhere I go, and they are so comfortable. Seriously, I look professional enough for any meeting I need to go to, but feel like I'm in my PJs. It's the best of both worlds. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has the pants to match. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, and more. They even have a pair with eight, yes, eight, pockets. (laughs) And now they also offer premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to Beta Brand dot com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A. That is 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash Alyssa. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants that you'll ever wear. Go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A for 20% off. You call yourself a disabled patient advocate. Will you explain to the listeners exactly what that means and what you do? Because over the past couple of years, you've traveled to D.C., um, I think, about 15 times. Yes. Well, originally, I had intended on being in D.C. as a one-off. I went down on the day of the skinny repeal when it looked like, you know, it was for sure going to be repealed in the Senate as the skinny repeal at that time is what it was called. But shortly thereafter, uh, when it wasn't, and people had seen my advocacy in D.C. that day, they started sharing their stories with me. And they reached out to me and told me that they trusted me, that, that they felt comfortable with me bringing their stories to their representatives. And I was so honored that and privileged that somebody would tell me something so personal and share something so deeply personal with me. It, you know, as somebody who lives with lupus, one of the, one of the biggest symptoms is chronic fatigue. I can't tell you how much it energizes me when somebody says to me, you have changed my life. You've impacted my life. You've given me hope, you know, that I can live and I, I'm not afraid of losing my health care. I mean, that for somebody like myself who does have to live within limits, it, it, it does, it, it, it just motivates me to want to, to try harder, to want to push myself further. And I made my first trip as a, as a patient advocate and reaching out. I mean, it started out where I basically, you know, I, the first day I was the first on my first trip, I just kind of walked in and out of different offices. And by the second trip, I had made some contacts, but I just started reaching out on my own. I did everything on my own. I got, you know, numbers from, you know, each representative website, each senator and each uh, congressperson has their own website, contact information. I just, anybody who would reach out to me, I would reach out to their office. I would discuss healthcare with that person. The Senate Help Committee makes a lot of the decisions for healthcare in the Senate. I started reaching out to those members and started speaking with them. So for people and, that don't understand, I just want to make this super, super clear. What sure. Peter does is he collects stories of people that are dealing with issues of health. And he uh, they they send him their stories of uh, how healthcare, how they need healthcare, how the Affordable Care Act has helped them, what they need as far as being a, a patient. And Peter, even though he is so sick, he takes these stories and brings them to the representatives of the districts where these people live. 
And when he first started, he did this blindly. And then he sort of got this reputation as being a patient advocate. And he would bring stories to senators and congresspeople from people in in their districts, from their constituents. And this also led him to testify before the House Appropriations Subcommittee of Departments of Labor, uh, Health and Human Services, Education, and Related Agencies. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience, Peter. Well, you know, it it was extremely surreal. I have to say that, first of all. Um, you know, never in my wildest dreams or in my, uh, you know, eighth grade history class could I imagine that this is where my advocacy was going to take me to. But it was it was an honor. I felt like all the voices that I have represented over the years, the couple of years now, I had to count up all the meetings that I had in DC. And at that time, it was about 253 meetings uh, that I had set. And I lost track of the stories. I mean, there are thousands of stories that I've shared at this point. And I felt at in that moment, testifying at an oversight committee for uh, the Trump administration's policies uh, that all these voices were being heard and they were going into the congressional record and they were being recognized. So all those people who felt alone and isolated, they weren't anymore because now they were part of the congressional record forever. Hey, it's Congressman Andy Levin sitting in my office this morning with my new friend, Peter Morley, who is doing as much as any person in this country to fight for health care for every person. And right now our focus on, is on protecting people with pre-existing conditions, which is super important to both of us personally. <laughs> yes, yes. I, as I was telling you, I have over 10 pre-existing conditions and I live with lupus I'm a two-time cancer survivor, and it's a big struggle for me every day. It's a struggle for me to get down to D.C., but I'm happy to do it, and I'm happy to fight it, and I'm happy to represent the stories because 130 million people with pre-existing conditions are at stake. So this isn't a time to be quiet. Yeah, so Peter's voice and the voice of everybody seeing this who has a pre-existing condition yourself, your kids, your parents, your aunts and uncles— we need you to tell your members of Congress that we cannot allow this lawsuit to go forward that would completely overturn the Affordable Care Act. And we need to fight to support these bills that we're trying to pass in the House. We've already passed some. We will pass more that protect people with pre-existing conditions, like my two older kids, Kobe and Saul. Thank you, Congressman, and thank you for everything that you're doing. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. He's got 13 meetings today. I mean, come on, this is awesome. Thank you so much for what you're doing, seriously. This is the best. This is America. This is why I'm here, is to get to meet people like you. It's such a privilege. Thank you. I recognize that at the same time, we still have a long way to go with healthcare and and insulating it. Does it feel like healthcare is a priority in Washington? No. Absolutely not. And it's 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 ironic, I believe that's the right word, because healthcare was the number one issue during the midterm campaigns and it doesn't feel that way at all. It feels like for some of the legislators Healthcare was a means to an end to get elected, but it doesn't feel like it's the number one priority. I think Speaker Pelosi has made it her number one priority. It definitely does not feel that way in the Senate at all. Why do you think it's so complicated? Why do you think they complicate these issues so much? It should be a bipartisan issue, right? I mean, absolutely. We should be protecting our citizens of this country. Yes. From your perspective, how do you think it became so politicized where we've taken the humanity completely out of this issue? I mean, I can only conjecture that, you know, some of these legislators have support from 
pharmaceutical companies, they pick and choose the issues that they want to get around. Medicaid expansion is in every state except for 15. And it, it is something that is done on a local level. For instance, this would give like access to like, you know, tens of thousands of people in each state and especially in Florida and Texas that doesn't have it. But I don't understand the senators in those states when I ask them about it. They say that it is a local issue. But if you're a senator, you can throw your support behind your own state and, you know, at least show that you you do believe that people should have more access. Yeah, I think that's bullshit. I, th- I think it's bullshit because if if it was just a local issue, then they wouldn't be taking big pharma money from pharmaceutical right. companies, right? And if and if it is just yeah. a, a local issue, then they should stop doing that and let it be a local issue. I think it's become an us versus them issue. The the most important thing right now, I mean, obviously if I could snap my fingers, of course, I would love universal health care for everyone immediately. The most important thing right now is to ensure that the ACA is strengthened and fixed. But simultaneously, you know, there are policies out there that are going forward, such as Medicare for All, and there's uh, Medicare for America. And then there are several like Medicaid buy-ins in, in different states I mean, these are things that all offices should get behind, all legislators should get behind. And the truth is, the Democratic offices are the ones that are getting behind it more than the Republican offices. And it is a political issue. During the the repeal efforts, one of the biggest things was, was capping care. You know, before the ACA, you know, there were there were lifetime caps and there were, you know, pre-existing conditions, limitations, and, and people could charge more and they could charge not only, they could charge not only by the condition, but they could charge more for the gender. So I've heard this said, you know, and it's, and this is such a jarring thing to hear, but when you hear that being a woman is a pre-existing condition, I mean, that's just, Oh, I mean, being a woman, having a baby, yeah. having a cesarean right. section, premenstrual syndrome, acne. I right. mean, right. I think everybody is walking around with with all of that. Every every woman. We're calling this very meaningful uh, hearing, and I am uh, so proud that one of my constituents, Peter Morley, was invited to testify. Uh, he is the most effective uh, patient advocate I have ever met. And he has been a fierce defender of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Peter, uh, thousands of uh, patients and their families have reached out to you uh, to share their stories and asked you to bring those stories to Congress. Can you share what some of these stories are like? And is there anyone that stands out to you? Uh, Absolutely. Um, There are many that actually stand out to me. the most, the hardest stories for me to listen to are the people who could have been saved had the ACA been enacted, and uh, also the patients who would have, like some of these people, um, these patients have testified here today, they would have. Uh, been diagnosed sooner, their conditions would have been more under control and in some cases healed. Um, I hear from patients who, uh, excuse me, uh, rather caregivers who are, uh, they have uh, medically fragile children and they get their health insurance um, because of Medicaid expansion. I hear from people in states such as Texas, Florida, North Carolina, and Tennessee who don't have that 
same luxury because their states have not expanded Medicaid and they are denied that type of coverage had they lived in a separate state and they can't afford to move to another state to receive that type of coverage. Those are the stories that keep me up at night. sort of a technical question. Sure. Can you describe a little bit the difference in all of these plans, like Medicare for all, single payer? I mean, we hear so, the, the Affordable Care Act, we hear so much about all of these plans. What What is the biggest difference between them? And also, is there one in, in particular that you support more than the other? The saddest thing to me is that people who, who want universal health care, there's a lot of infighting between like a Medicare for all or Medicare for America. Uh, whereas like something like a Medicaid buy-in, which is more specific to like a state, they don't think that you can do a Medicare for all or a Medicaid buy-in at the same time. But what I do support, as I mentioned earlier, is I do support an ACA fix because we need to do something with that now. We need to get the deductibles and the premiums lowered because it's those are the things that is making healthcare unaffordable for so many people and access. Yeah, it's almost so like I don't care how we get there. I don't care whose right. who's policy or legislation it is. Because right. I do think a lot of it has to do with politicians putting forth their idea of what healthcare looks like. Right. Which is fine, but that also has a personal agenda, I think, that comes along with it that gets a little dangerous, right? Like Bernie right. Bernie believes in this type of health care and right. so-and-so believes in this type of health care. So I don't care how we get it, just as long as we get there. Well, I've said this before, and I think other people have said this too, that if Trump during the repeal really believed in his healthcare because we 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 want it to be good too right we want whatever we end up for to be good so if trump really believed as his narcissistic ego if trump really believed in the aca repeal and what the new replacement was going to be uh, go, was going to be he would have called a trump care I mean, it would have been called Trump care. Right. And look, and, and here's, and here's the, the, here's the, here's, here's the real truth. If it was that great, I would have supported it. And I know a lot of other people that would have supported it. We didn't politicize healthcare. We were having our healthcare being ripped away from us. And, you know, we as patients and I've, you know, as many patients that I've spoken to as well, want the best, most affordable care possible. And you're right. It doesn't matter how we get there and we can do things simultaneously. We could do the fixes and we can continue towards that road. But the infighting is a thing that's going to hold us back and push out the actual finish line by years if we don't all work together. And that's the most important message that I could ever say. We we all need to work together towards a common goal, whether it's Medicare for all or Medicare for America or whatever it is. It's we need we need to do it together. Do you think that politicians are gonna use healthcare or the ACA in, in their twenty twenty runs? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I, I think it's I think it's a huge mistake if they don't. Yes, it is a mistake if they don't address healthcare at all. I know a couple of them are are using it already, and I think a couple of them are staying away from it. It's very interesting to to see that as well. There's such a such a huge playing field, but I agree with you. It, It is a huge mistake because healthcare is still a number one issue that I keep reading about. I mean, this is something right. that that weighs so 
so heavily on everybody's mind that I believe that any politician that is just ignoring this this issue and not making it uh, not only just part of their platform, but the biggest part of their platform is really losing an opportunity to unify the mm. country because I think right. people don't look at this as a bipartisan issue. There are right. there are Republicans that that are against what this administration is doing to health care. And I don't know many issues where you can look at it and say, oh, well, both sides are together on this. Right. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I do walk into these offices and I have represented everyone and I never ask them, you know, if they voted for Trump or not, you know, and I walk into any office that anybody asks me to both Democrat or Republican. And I say to each of them, healthcare is a bipartisan issue and it should always be that way. And the other thing is that we are all, I mean, God forbid, one health issue away from having a chronic condition. And that's the truth. And it happened to me and it's happened to other people I know. And you know, unfortunately for some people, it's, they don't realize that until it happens to them. But I think there are a lot of people that do get that. So if someone's listening to this and dealing with uh, health issues and would like for you to advocate for them, how, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, they could definitely either follow me on Twitter at more than my SLE, or they can reach out to me. I have a submission forum. I have a website, uh, more than my SLE.com. And they can submit that story and I will definitely reach out to their legislator and share it with them. And if there's someone listening that wants to help in this fight to make sure people don't lose our health care, what can people do? The best way and the most effective way I found is that calls make such a huge difference. And I used to think, Alyssa, when I started this fight, that it was thousands of calls. But I've been told that 100 or 200 calls, specifically about one issue, will get the attention of the legislator. So can you imagine if we have 130 million people with pre-existing conditions, because we're gearing up for a huge battle right now for the legitimacy and the constitutionality of the ACA, which the hearings are now going to start on July 8th. And if they declare it unconstitutional and all the pre-existing conditions protections are taken away, 130 million people, if point zero one percent of those people call that's uh, 130,000 people that would be a lot but even if it was less than that it would make a huge impact and that is the most effective way all you have to say is like what I say hi my name is Peter Morley I'm from zip code you know whatever your zip code is and I want my senator or my congressperson to support pre-existing conditions. That's all you have to say. And that call can change and save lives. So what does it mean to be a citizen? Of course, there is the national identity given to the subject of a government. But beyond that, especially in democracies, citizenship is power. That when any individual consents to be governed, all legitimacy for that government flows from the people. Without the support of the people, their government cannot stand. It is a power that many around the world can only dream of holding. But as Spider-Man is fond of reminding us, with great power comes great responsibility. The founders knew this. Our nation was born from citizen activism of a people who had consented 
to be governed exercising their citizenship by revoking that consent. And in doing so, they demanded the notion of the activist citizen reverberating through history. In the Declaration of Independence, they wrote, To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government. In short, from the very first day of our nation's existence as an independent state, our founders placed all the power in the hands of the citizens willing to wield it. And that is exactly what citizen activists do. You've heard story after story from incredible people taking the endowment that Jefferson, Hancock, Adams, and others ripped from King George and entrusted to us. You've heard from people talking about the American destiny instead of the American dream. And you've heard how the whole world has changed because of these actions and more like them. It is when we use our power, backed by the radical idea that the governed are more powerful than the government, that we are most truly a citizen. It is our right, but it is also our duty. At its core, citizenship means we are bound together to one another, that your destiny is my destiny, and that as the founders concluded in the Declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. What could ever be more powerful than that? Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson, editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs, and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.